I'm going to talk about faith on this tape. I'm completely convinced that the church today was like I was for many, many years of my life. I did not understand what faith was. Uh, I now realize that unanswered prayer stand between me or any individual and a faith life. Uh, if Some people have lost faith altogether. Some people never had any faith. Many people think they have faith, but because they have not seen their prayers answered, they'll turn to uh, other organizations, uh, cults, and so forth, because their prayer lives were failures. I have talked to many people uh, in my life, especially in the last 15 years since I've learned how to pray and, and see answers to my prayer. My prayers, I've asked many people if they've had a very productive prayer life, and most of those people, I'm talking about people in the church, have a very, very weak prayer life and have seen very, very few answers to their prayers. You know, I believe if I was to ask the average individual what he believes to be his greatest difficulty in his Christian walk, I believe the answer would invariably be from almost everybody. I believe they would just tell me, I, I don't have enough faith. I know it is not God's fault. I know the promises are there in the Word. I have simply failed to get faith. I have prayed for it. I have fasted for it but I don't know how to get it. You know, this is the whole thing. People do not know how to pray and pray in faith. That's the reason I'm going to make this tape, because I want to get down to the answer of the faith problem for thinking men and women. Now, I realize you're going to have to be a thinking person you're going to have to listen to God's Word, and you're going to have to act on God's Word to make these things come to pass. You know, this, this faith, faith business literally has me whipped, is what most men and women would say. I've heard people say, the pastor preached on it Sunday. He didn't tell me how to get faith, but he told me the necessity of it, and he told me what it could do. You know, a pastor will quote these wonderful, wonderful sentences from the lips of the master. Just like he said over there in Mark 9, 23, he says, All things are possible to him that believeth, or if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, and so forth. The thing about it is people have tried to get it. I have done everything that I knew or everyone else would, could tell me, but it seems to be so evasive. Can you tell me where the difficulty lies? I like this person. He was so frank, so genuine, the distress in his eyes challenges me. If I have to say to people like this, people that ask these questions or tell me these things after they've been to church, I have to go back to the Word and tell you what the Word says. It don't do any good to pray for faith. The only way you can get faith is according to Romans 10:17. Romans 10:17 says faith comes through hearing the word of God. It didn't say it came from reading God's word. It said it comes from hearing God's word. You know, most people have faith in the place where they work, 
Uh, they have faith that they're going to pay them next week. They have faith in their bank when they take their money down there and put it in a bank. You know, you, you know that your money's going to be there, or you feel sure it was, or you wouldn't have took your money and put it in the bank. But it's amazing how people don't have any faith in God's Word. And, of course, I've come to realize the major reason most people don't have any faith in God's Word is because they do not know what God's Word says. But God and His Word are one. Now, God is back of every word that He promises. Not only is He back of it, but His throne is back of His Word. He clearly said in His Word, I'll watch over my Word to perform it. Now, God is a businessman. He knows that His Word is the foundation of everything, so He stands back of it. Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away. Now, this is the thing that gives each of us faith, or that gives faith integrity. You know, faith comes by hearing the word, understanding it, and by it becoming a part of us. And again, this is one of the reasons that so few of us have any faith at all. It's because the Word is not in us. Now, if the Word is not in you, you have no faith. Without the Word of God being in you, you have no faith. You only begin to get faith when you and the Word begin to become one. Now, I'm sure I'm going to say a hard thing to some of you. I'm sure you will understand me. Lying and deceit and dishonesty are the badges of the world. You know, we see it in all relationships between nations. They have their secret servicemen listening in everywhere. They're robbing each other of blueprints, you know, of warships and of all kinds of things. Of, there's just no security anywhere, it seems like, anymore. We're selling our stuff to China or giving it to them, and uh, all over the world, uh, people and nations are robbing and stealing and cheating and tying into our computer systems to to get our secrets. <clears throat> you know, I think that because there's no integrity in the world today, I think this is one of the main reasons for our unbelief. You know, it's just that the, the air is pregnant with it. When we come up against the Word of God, which cannot lie and cannot be challenged, Somehow or other, we are unprepared to accept it. Now, Satan is a liar, and he is the god of this world. Now, Satan is the deceiver, and every time you even think about trying to act on God's word, he will always be there to remind you of who you are not. He will begin to remind you that you're an old nobody, and who, you, who do you think you are? You don't really think God would do something good for you. Now, Jesus came as a revelation of truth. He is the only one who ever made men become honest. When to tell the truth meant that they would be burned at the stake, even if they tell the truth. There is men that have come to this earth that wasn't worth killing, that come to know Jesus, and became such men and women of integrity and honesty, and it's all because they became children 
of the king of the universe. Now, here, right here, we see the foundations of faith. You come to know Jesus through the word, and he introduces you to the Father. Then you begin to act on the word, to test it out, as it were. After a bit, you will find that acting on what Jesus said, or the Father said, becomes a na as natural as acting on your business deals. Now, after careful thought, you know, you can deal with a person of the world. When they make you uh, a venture of some kind, you'll say, I believe you, or I'll shake hands on this, and you have faith that what they said is going to come to pass. So you're going to have to do the same thing with God and his word. Now, there is one foundation for faith, and it is the living word of the living God. Now, as we become one with the word in our actions, then faith becomes an unconscious reality. You never think of your faith. You only think of the need and his ability to meet it. If you wish faith to grow and become robust and strong, you must soak in the Word of God. You must feed on it. You must meditate on it until you become one with the Word in the sense that you are one with your business. That's the reason you have great faith in your business and the products you sell. It's because you know them, and you know they will do what they say they will do, and that's why you can sell them or act upon them. Well, you didn't get that way overnight, so you're going to have to take the Word of God and do the same thing. Then you're going to have to find out who you are in Christ, what your privileges are, and what He thinks of you, and what He says of you, and you will find all these mighty things in the Word of the living God. Now, faith is giving substance to things hoped for. Faith is grasping the unrealities of hope and bringing them into the realm of reality. Faith grows out of the Word of God. It is the warranty deed that the thing for which you have fondly hoped is at last yours. It is the evidence of things not seen. You hope for finances to meet that obligation. Faith gives assurance that you will have the money when you need it. You hope for physical strength to do the work that you know you must do. Faith says, God is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Sense knowledge has given to the church mental assent. Now this looks so much like faith that many people cannot see the difference. Now mental assent is seeing it, admiring it, saying it is true, but not in my case. Now, this is where most of the church lives. Now, mental assent agrees that the Bible is a revelation, that it came from God, and that every word is true. And yet, when the crisis comes, it does not work. It simply recognizes the truthfulness of that wonderful book, but it does not act upon it. In other words, if you only think that the Bible will work, it will not work for you. You must hear it, you must believe it, 
You must trust it. You must act upon it. And then if you do, you have revelation faith. And that faith will cause your prayers to get answered. Now, hope says, I will get it sometimes. Now, that's where lots of people live. I talk to lots of people, and when, especially when it comes to deliverance and healing, or even meeting finances, they say, I hope this is going to happen. But hope says, I will get it sometime, which is always future tense. But faith says, I have it now, because it's written in the Word of God. Now, this mental assent that most Christians have that says it is beautiful. I know I should have it. For some reason, I don't get it. It says I don't understand it. Sense, knowledge, faith says when I see it, when I feel it, I will know I have it. Now, that's where most of the church lives today. They say when I see that I have the money, when I feel that I'm healed, then I will know that I have it. But that won't never bring it to reality for you. Real faith in the Word says, if God says it is true, it is true. If he says that by his stripes I am healed, I am. And if he says that God shall supply every need of mine, he will do it. If God says he is the strength of my life, he is. So I'll go about doing my work because he is what he says he is, and I am what he says I am. If he says that I am strong, then I am strong. If God's word says that I am healed, I am healed, regardless of the consequences of what the devil puts on me. If God says that he cares for me, I know that he cares for me. So quietly, I rest on his word irrespective of evidences that would satisfy the senses. Real faith is built on the word of the living God. It is untarnished by sense knowledge. It is as unconscious of itself as is the faith of a little child in its mother's arms. The child never says, Now, Mother, I believe your word. I know that if I ask you for a piece of bread, you will give it to me. It is said such things uh, that, you know, if, if, the, if the children didn't believe the mother, the mother wouldn't know what to do. She would wonder what happened to her child. Now, we have built around faith a strange wordology that is like a barbed wire entanglement. You hear men and women cry out all the time, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. You hear them pray for faith. You hear men tell God that they know that what he says is true, that every word he has spoken is true. All that indicates a dominion of sense and knowledge over their spirits, that the word has not yet gained the supremacy in their lives. Now, faith is the result of the word dwelling in you. I don't mean the word committed to memory. I mean the word live practiced until it has become a part of you. We meditate in it. We think deeply in it. We feed upon it. The Word of God becomes a very part of ourselves. This Word of faith builds into us confidence and assurance. 
Now, sense knowledge will fight every step of the way to hold us in the realm of things seen, felt, and heard. But we persistently drive ourselves into the Word until the Word is a part of our being and the Word becomes real. And if the Word of God makes you a promise, then you can take that Word and you can stand on it. It doesn't make any difference what the adversary or the enemy hits you with. It doesn't make any difference if he's put you on your knees with pain or symptoms or whatever he does. The Word becomes such a reality to you, you can stand on it. Now, let me give you a little example of this. Just a few months ago, I was out working on my truck in my shop. And as I come around the front of my truck, I made a quick left turn around the front of the truck. And when I did, of course, my body twisted. And my back on my right side, it popped. I could hear it. And it hit me with excruciating pain. Now, I have a decision to make. Am I going to say, oh, my goodness, I've just twisted my back and I'm, I'm down and I have great pain? Or am I going to say what the Word says? Well, the Word of God is such an integral part of me. As I'm falling, grabbing the front of that truck to hold myself direct, I'm saying, Oh, Father, I want to thank you for one more opportunity to prove that greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I want to thank you, Father, that James chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 1 says that these various trials and tests are building my faith, which is more precious to you than gold. So, Father, I want to thank you that your word said with your stripes I was healed. And I want to thank you that your word says in Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 that you bore my pain on the cross and with your stripes I am healed. So I thank you that I don't have to bear this pain because Jesus bore it for me on the cross. I thank you that I don't have to have this back problem because you took it upon yourself and I was healed 2,000 years ago. So Father, I want to thank you and praise you for one more opportunity to prove that the Holy Spirit that lives in me is greater than the enemy that lives in the world. So now then, I thank you that I'm healed, and I thank you that my pain is gone. Now I'm going to stand up. I'm going to have no pain. I'm going to go ahead and work this day with no pain and no back problems. And I thank you and praise you for your word. And I stood erect, and I walked off, and no pain. No pain, no more problems with my back. Now, that's what you do when the Word becomes an integral part of you. That's the way you make it work for you. I want to share with you a couple of kinds of faith that I see in the church today. And I want to explain to you the kind of faith I believe that the men and women had in Jesus before his death and resurrection. Now, in John chapter 20, verse 9, it says, For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now, this is a part of the dramatic story connected with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, we know that salvation is dependent upon our faith in Jesus as a substitute, that he died for our sins, and that he rose for our justification. So the disciples' faith in Jesus 
as described in John 11:22, as whenever Martha was asked this question, Martha said to Jesus, Yes, Lord, I have believed that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, even he that cometh into the world. Now, she did not have faith in Jesus as the one who had died and risen as her personal substitute and Savior. She had faith in him as God's Son, as the Messiah that had been promised. Now, Peter made another confession of Jesus, which is recorded in Matthew 6.16. As Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, that that was not a confession that Christ had died for his sins and had risen for his justification, but simply a confession of his Messiahship and his being the Son of God. Now, there is still another type of confession in the four Gospels that is striking. Over in John 6:30, they said, Therefore unto him, What then dost thou for a sign that we may see and believe thee what workest thou? Now notice this expression, that we may see and believe. These people were just like us today. Most of us want to see before we believe. Perhaps we should turn to John twenty twenty five and read Thomas's declaration. Jesus had appeared in the, to the disciples after his resurrection. Now we all know this story. Thomas was not present. They told him what had taken place. And what did Thomas say? Thomas said, Except I see in his hands the prints of the nails and put my finger into the prints of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Uh, that's unfortunate. That's where so much of the church is living today. He was willing to believe it if he could have the evidence. In other words, if he could see Jesus. Now, Jesus met him in verse 27 through 29, and he said, Thomas, reach hither thy finger and see my hands, and reach hither thy hand and put it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Now, Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said unto him, Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are those that have not seen and yet have believed. Now here we see two kinds of faith in contrast. Now one of these types of faith is sense knowledge faith, which is based, based totally upon physical evidence. We see and we believe. We hear and we believe. Now Jesus speaks of another kind of faith, for they do not see, nor feel, nor hear, yet they believe. Now the faith that men had in Jesus during his earth walk was sense-knowledge faith. This is one of the most startling discoveries that I've ever made in the faith walk. It clears up many, many problems and many issues. The great body of the church has sense knowledge faith rather than faith in the revelation that God has given to us. During the earth walk of Christ, the Jews were under the first covenant. They were still under the law. They were under the covenant of the blood of bulls and goats. They did not have eternal life until Christ died and rose again. 
for none of them believed in Jesus as a Savior. They did not believe in his substitutionary work because they did not know anything about it. Now, in Luke 24, we're given a vivid picture of the condition of the disciples after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He had appeared to Mary and to the others. They rushed to the place where the disciples were gathered. Now there was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and the other women, and them told these things unto the apostles. And these words appeared in their sight as idle talk, and they disbelieved them. There was no saving faith on the part of, of the disciples at this time. They did not hail him as their Savior. They were mystified. They were totally staggered by his appearance. They recognized him, for they saw the evidence of the crucifixion in his body. They knew it was him. The disciples had faith in Jesus as a Messiah. They had faith in him as the Son of God, but not as a substitute, not as a Savior from sin. They saw him as their deliverer from Rome. The knowledge of Christ's substitutionary work did not come to them clearly until God gave it to Paul. Now, we have it in his revelation to Paul in the epistles. Now then, let's look and see how faith is seen by the apostles over here. Let's go over into the book of Acts. Now, let us notice the faith that the disciples had as recorded in the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts, before the Pauline revelation became known. Now, in Acts chapter 1, the disciples met the Master. They touched him. They ate with him. They heard his voice. Their faith in him was based totally upon sense evidence. They've seen him. They know that he's real. It is not the kind of faith that you have. You have never seen Jesus physically. You haven't, most people have never heard his voice. You have never touched his physical body, yet you believe he arose from the dead. Now, they had lived with him before his death. They had lived with him again for 40 days after his resurrection. They had literally seen him. Now, let's look at Acts chapter 2 and see what the scripture says. And it says, And when the day of Pentecost was now come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound as of the rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them tongues parting asunder like as of fire, and it set upon each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, they heard the sound of the rushing mighty wind. Now, they saw the tongues. You know, they saw these things. They uh, looked like fire. They were parting upon the brow of each one of them, and they heard them speak in tongues and glorify God. There was no revelation faith in this uh, uh, scenario. It was purely sense-knowledge faith. They're seeing and hearing everything. They believed in tongues because they heard people speak with tongues. They believed the Spirit had come because they had seen the evidence. 
Now, today, you and I don't have that privilege. We have to believe first. Now, the mighty miracles that followed, which are recorded in Acts chapter 5, gave the multitude great faith in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It was not the kind of faith that you have today, because you have no such physical evidence as they had in Jerusalem. Now, in 1 John chapter 1, the first few verses, it is written, That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we beheld and our hands handle concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested and we have seen it, and we bear witness and declare unto you the life, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that you may also may have fellowship with us. Yes, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, there were Peter and others who had seen Jesus with their own eyes after the resurrection, and with their own hands they had handled him according to these scriptures. Now, Jesus had given them the right to use his name and to lay hands upon the sick. Now, they manifested this authority. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John used the name to heal the impotent man at the beautiful gate of the temple. Now, that is an awesome thing. The multitude could see the man whom they had known as a helpless cripple healed before their eyes. The Sanhedrin could say nothing when they arrested them. Because in Acts chapter 4, seeing the man that was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. It closed their mouths. Peter did not say on the day of Pentecost when they asked him, men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? That they, must, that they were to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He simply said, repent and be baptized. Any one of you in the name of Jesus Christ unto the remission of your sins. The revelation of faith had not yet come. God was dealing with them as children. He did not ask them to believe anything they could not see, hear, or feel. It may be interesting to note here that many times believers have said to me, we want a primitive type of Christianity such as the church had in the first few years of its existence. Goodness. They did not know that by attempting to get that type of Christianity, they were repudiating real faith and the Word. They declare that no one ever received the Holy Spirit unless he has received a physical manifestation. They do not believe God is in the midst of people unless there is sense evidence. Boy, that is where the church lives today. There's just no two ways about it. Now, that is not faith in the Word of God. That is faith in the senses. You can say, I saw it, I heard it, I felt it, therein I believe I have it. And whenever people get into that realm, that's why they can believe. In Galatians chapter 3, this only would I learn from you received you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now perfected in the flesh? Or your sense knowledge? 
You can see that God has dealt in great grace with us as children, when by reason of time we should have grown up and learned to walk by faith and not by sight. If you will study carefully the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts, you will notice that there is not the slightest evidence that any of them understood the teaching of substitution. There is not one hint of the great teaching of righteousness. There is not one indication they understood what the new birth meant. They enjoyed it. They walked in the fullness of it, but they did not understand it. That was to come later through the revelation the Father was to give to the Apostle Paul. Now, we would naturally expect that in the book of Acts there would be an opening of the great subjects, redemption, substitution, the new creation, the ministry of Jesus at the right hand of the Father, but there is not an inkling of these things in the book of Acts. The nearest of anything like that in the book is found in Acts 15, 10 and 11, at the council at Jerusalem, where Paul laid before the apostle the message he had preached. Then Peter said, Now, therefore, why make ye trials of God, that ye should put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that we shall be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the manner as they. Now, he had reference to the keeping of the law under the first covenant. The last statement is in regard to the Gentile believers. Before we take up Revelation faith, we should notice the different kinds of faith that men have in Jesus today. Now, you know, there is many different types of faith, like the Christian science, the unity believers, and other different kinds of teachers today. They do not believe that God is a person. They will tell you that he is a perfect man, but he has no location. It is just a great universal man which finds his home in every individual. He has no headquarters. It is a man without a brain, without a personality. They do not believe in sin, as Paul taught it in the revelation given to him. They do not believe that Jesus died for our sins, but that he died as a martyr. They do not believe he had a literal resurrection, a physical resurrection, but as one puts it, a kind of type of metaphysical resurrection. It's amazing how many people today, even in, it's getting to where today, it's, it's getting to where that you have a sense that even people in the mainline denominations are losing this revelation faith, if they ever had it. Their faith in Jesus is sense knowledge faith. Now, if God is not a person and Jesus did not put sin away, then who is Jesus? And what is the value of our faith in him? Now, one of these people call him the way shore. He is not a way shore. He is the way. He clearly told us that in John. He said, I am the way. I am the life. And I am the truth. And no man comes to the Father in heaven except through me. Most of these people in these other organizations, their faith in Jesus and their faith in God is 
after all, faith in themselves and what they inherently have within themselves. But it has caused mighty changes in them. But it has never produced a new creation. It has never brought them into real fellowship with the Father God. It has never given them righteousness. What is the faith that the modernists have today? It is not faith in Jesus as a substitute for their sin, for they do not believe in the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. It is not faith in God the Father as unveiled to us by Jesus. It is faith in man's conception of Jesus. It does not produce a new creation. It does not save the lost. Men have faith in science, and loudly proclaim science as the modern god of the human being. But science is but a fragment of knowledge that man has gathered out of the great body of hidden truths in the universe. He has gained this knowledge through the five physical senses. These five senses have been unable to find the reason for creation or the cause of the creation. They have not discovered the source of life or motion or the authority or power that holds the universe together. They do not know the reason for man, nor the end of man. As sense knowledge is limited, so sense knowledge faith is limited, and there's no power in it. Now, I think about a few years ago when my son was a very small boy, about 20 years ago, we were sitting there one Saturday morning or one Friday night, and they were discussing that down at the Anatole Hotel there was going to be a large group of scientists that were going to meet and discuss the origins of the universe. And my little five- or six-year-old son at the time said, Daddy, you mean those men don't know where the universe came from? I said, That's right, son. They're still trying to figure it out. He said, Well, Daddy... Why don't we go down there in the morning and I will tell them that God created the heavens and the earth and then they will know. Isn't that amazing that a little five or six-year-old boy, that his father has taught him the word of God since he was a tiny baby. He has already gained the revelation faith to know where all these things come from and he was on his way to developing his revelation faith. Now, today, there are many different phases of faith. Now, today, men, like Henry Ford, for instance, he had faith that he could build a low-priced automobile that everybody could afford to buy. And look what happened. You know, faith is the advanced element. It's the greatest element to advance civilization. As human faith gives birth to such achievements in the natural realm, so the believer's faith in the Father and His Word gives birth to spiritual achievements. Now, the teacher or the preacher who has faith in the message that he is giving finds that the Word of God produces faith in the hearts of men who hear him. If he has faith in the Word that God is in it and back of it, it will produce great results. 
Now, you know, we have faith in love, the Jesus kind of love. He believes, we believe that it is the solution of every human problem, and the family that practices love produces the highest type of Christian character. But I will say that it was a great day in my own life when I discovered that God was a faith God and that nothing moved his hand outside of faith. Now, faith is the Word of God, so you have to use the Word of God. Now, I knew that God was a love God. I knew he was a righteous God. I knew that he was an omnipotent God, that he was omniscient. But when I found he was primarily a faith God, I saw that it was natural for us as his children to walk by faith. Now, Hebrews 11.3 says that by faith we understand that the worlds have been framed by the word of God, so that what is seen hath not been made out of things which appear. That was a fresh new creation, not a rebuilt creation made out of worn-out worlds. I discovered that it was ruled by words, this new creation, because Hebrews 1.3 says, who being the influence of his glory and the very image of his substance and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, there are three great words used again and again in the first chapter of the book of Genesis. Now, these words are, let there be. Now, these are faith-filled words and these faith-filled words brought the universe into being. And faith-filled words are ruling that same universe today. Jesus gave us some illustrations of creative faith. Now, in Matthew 15, 30 and 31, we record that the names were made whole. Let's read that. And there came unto him great multitudes, having with them the lame the blind, the dumb, the maimed, and many others, and they cast them down at his feet, and he healed them, insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb speaking, the maimed whole, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. <clears throat> Since I have known and understood and got a hold of this kind of faith, I have seen mighty things happen. I have literally seen people on their deathbeds raised up when I teach them faith and build their faith mountain high. I've seen sickness and disease disappear. I've seen warts fall off of children's bodies all over them. I've seen new things made in people's bodies. I've seen the dead raised. I've seen God do awesome things. Now, creative faith is just as real today as it was when Jesus walked in Galilee. This is faith that rules circumstances. Now, in Hebrews 1.3, we see a picture of Jesus, who being the effluence of his glory 
and the very image of his substance, and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Here, he is not only a creator, but he also dominates what he has created. He rules the universe by the word of his power. Here is an illustration of his dominating the forces of nature. Now in Matthew 8:26, then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Jesus ruled the wind and the sea. How his authority staggered those who observed it. After Jesus had done this, and he had commanded the winds and the waves to obey him, and they did. It's amazing what these men thought about that. They, they just couldn't grasp this. In fact, in uh, Luke 5, uh, verse, starting with verse 1, we see him ruling the fish of the sea. He had used Peter's boat for a little while as a pulpit, and then he paid for it. He said, Peter, did you catch anything last night? Peter said, No, Master, we didn't catch anything. Jesus said, Put out into the deep and let down your nets. Peter said, I know, Master, there are no fish here, but at your word I will let down the net. And, of course, the nets were filled instantly. Now, that is dominating faith. Now, in Mark 1, 32 through 34, And at evening when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were sick, and them that were possessed with demons, and all the city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many that were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he suffered not the demons to speak, because they knew him. Now Jesus ruled demons, and they recognized his dominion over them. Now in John 11, at the rising of Lazarus, he was master over death. He said, Roll away the stone. Then he commanded Lazarus to come forth. Jesus had dominating faith. He ruled the demons, the demonic forces. He ruled the works of the devil. Jesus was master. He commanded a tree to die, and it died from the roots up. He was absolute monarch of the laws that governed the universe. Now then, few of us realize what a mighty force we have in religious faith today. Now, men have faith in creeds and organizations, in church, in medicine, in doctors, in medical science, in surgical science, and all these good works. They have, have faith in those things. It is amazing the faith the average man has in something that he or someone else can do. It just never ceases to amaze me. For instance, if we come down with a sickness or disease, Ninety-nine and nine-tenths percent of all people in the church today will not go to the Word of God for healing. They will go to a doctor. It just never ceases to amaze me. Now, perhaps the most delusive of all the different kinds of faith is faith in experiences. Some men will tell what they have felt, what they have heard or seen. Someone said to me recently, I am not healed. I have not been able to demonstrate my faith. Such people have sense, knowledge, faith. 
They must have physical evidence or they do not believe what the Word says. No delusion that has grasped the modern church is more deadly than this kind of faith. Some do not believe that they have received the Holy Spirit until they have had a physical manifestation of some kind, like speaking in tongues or something. They can't believe what the Scripture says. Most people do not believe they are healed until the pain has left their body. And that's why so few people get healed today. They do not believe God has heard their prayer until they can see some physical evidence of it. Now, we have seen in this type of faith that sense knowledge and sense evidence holds the place that the Word of God should hold in your life. Now, in Revelation faith, the Word holds the first place. It is not dependent upon physical evidence. Revelation faith believes that no word from God is void of power and rests in quiet confidence in what God has stated. It accepts the word as final without any other evidence. If the word declares it, that is enough. The sick one reads, Surely he hath borne my sicknesses and carried my diseases. And he cries, Thank you, Father then I am healed. Now this is new covenant or revelation faith. Praise God. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about revelation faith. Now this revelation faith is where you will begin to see mighty miracles happen in your life when you get a hold of this. Now there are several great scriptures in the Old Testament on which the Pauline revelation is based. The first one that I find here is in Genesis 15:6, and it says, And Abraham believed God, and he reckoned it unto him for righteousness. This means that he had made an unqualified committal unto Jehovah, and he reckoned it unto him for righteousness. Now this unqualified committal is identical with the thought in Romans 10, 8, 9, and 10. The scripture reads, Because if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord, and shalt believe in thy heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be put to shame. Now this revelation faith has given to Paul demands a confession with our lips. It can, demands a confession of our mouth of the Lordship of Jesus. This means an unqualified committal to the Word because the Word takes a place of the absent Christ because, you see, Christ and the Word are one. Today we don't have the physical Christ here with us, but we have His Word. So Him and the Word are one. So today we have to base everything on revelation faith. Now there is another scripture in Isaiah 28:16 where he says, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not be put to shame. Now it 
It says that whosoever does this shall not be put to shame. Regardless of the circumstances of appearances or sense evidence, he rests his case absolutely on the word of the living God. Now, there is a, another scripture in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, that says, My righteous one shall live by faith. Now, it carries us a step further. My righteous one has been made righteous by a new creation. He is to walk not by sight or by feeling. He is to walk by faith. In other words, he is to walk by the word of God. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, I'm completely convinced that even most of the people in the church that can quote that scripture still does not have a clue what that really means. Now, Hebrews 10.38 says, My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. You notice in each one of these scriptures is a challenge for our confidence or our trust. You are his righteous one. You are to live by faith. You are not to draw back to sense evidences or sense knowledge. You are to walk on with Jesus in the light of the word. You will do as Abraham did. You are looking at the word and you act strong through faith, giving glory to God. For you reckon that God is able to make good in you all that he has promised in his word. You can see how these great scriptures become the foundation of the revelation of righteousness by faith in the word as it is found in the Pauline epistles. Now you will find at the beginning of his great argument in the book of Romans that Paul uses Abraham's faith as a type. Now in Romans 4, verse 3 and 5, it says, For what saith the scripture... And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh, the reward is not reckoned as of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is reckoned for righteousness. Now righteousness means the ability to stand in God's presence without this sense of sin, guilt, or inferiority. Praise the Lord. We can do that now. You will notice that after God reckoned righteousness to Abraham, that he made his great appeal for the salvation of Sodom and Gomorrah. Read carefully Genesis chapter 18 and see the fearless faith of Abraham. Just think, he was standing in the presence of Almighty God, and he was asking him to forgive these people down there and save this city, or all these cities. And God said he would do it if he could find as little as ten righteous people there. Now, he was righteous as we are righteous. His <clears throat> Now, let me re rephrase that. Abraham was not righteous as we are righteous. There's no way. His righteousness was merely reckoned to him. Now, it was set to his account. It gave him credit with God. 
Now, the scripture we just read there from Romans 4 tells us that righteousness is not reckoned on the grounds of works. The righteousness is granted on the grounds of faith. One does not work for it. We just accept this gift. Now, listen to what Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. This is an awesome scripture when you really let this soak into your spirit. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works that no man should glory. Awesome. That's awesome. Salvation, redemption, eternal life. <clears throat> the new creation, the indwelling presence of the Spirit, the legal right to use the name of Jesus and all our privileges as sons and daughters of God are based upon grace through faith. Now, no one earns these things. No one has a better position than another. Every person has the same righteousness, the same privileges, the same standing with God, for it is all of grace. Now, Abraham's faith is described in Romans four, eighteen through 21, as who in hope believed against hope to the end that he might become a father of many nations. Now, this is a startling statement. Faith had a combat with hope, and faith won. Hope is always future. Faith is always now. Hope would have robbed Abraham of his son, but faith combated with hope, defeated it, and received as the reward his precious son Isaac. Now in the 19th verse, he said, Without being weakened in faith, he considered his own body now as good as dead, he being a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Well, because she was 90 years old, yet looking into the promise of God, he wavered not through unbelief, but waxed strong through faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Now, folks, this is a beautiful picture of faith. A beautiful picture of faith. Abraham had nothing to rest upon except the word of an angel. Yet he believed that word. He looked upon his own body and said to himself, I am 99 years old. I have passed the age when I can be a, the father of a child. And he thought of Sarah 90 years of age. He knew that she was too old to bear a child. Yet turning away from the evidence of his senses, he looked at the word that God had spoken through the angel, and he waxed strong through faith, giving glory to God. For he said, without doubt or fear, God is able to make good what he has promised. Now let me tell you, this is most definitely not uh, sense knowledge faith. This is not sense knowledge faith. This is what I'm talking about when I say Abraham had revelation faith. Now, this is the kind of faith which Paul 
as given to us in his revelation. Notice this 22nd verse. Wherefore it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. He did not have the righteousness as we have. He had it set to his credit. Now in Romans 4, 23 starts out here in the word that says, Now it was not written for his sake alone that, that it was reckoned unto him, but for our sake also, unto whom it shall be reckoned, who believe on him that raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised because we stand right with God. Isn't that an awesome promise in, in Romans chapter 4, verse 23 through 25? Now, the Pauline revelation shows that God wrought a perfect redemption in Christ. Now, what he did is perfect. Of course, what God does is always perfect. Now, in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, he makes another awesome statement. I have read this scripture many times, and I love this book of Colossians it shows us so many wonderful things. But in Colossians 1.13, he says, Who delivered us out of the authority of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have our redemption, the remission of our sins. And then Ephesians 1.7, In whom we have our redemption through his blood, the remission of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then in Romans 3.26, For the showing, I say, of his righteousness at this present season, that he might himself be righteous, and the righteousness of him that has faith in Jesus. Now that redemption was a redemption from Satan's dominion. It was a redemption from the guilt and penalty of sin. It was a redemption of our physical body from the dominion of disease. It was a revelation of a new creation created in Christ Jesus. And that's us as born again sons and daughters of the king of the universe. That becomes a reality when we accept Christ as our Lord and our Savior and confess him as Lord and Savior. God gives to natural man his life and nature. Now, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the scriptures read, Wherefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things are passed away. Behold, they are become new. But all these things are of God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And in Ephesians 4, 23 and 24, the scripture says, And we put on the new man, that after God hath been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Now, this revelation of a new creation is the most amazing fact of the grace of God. Now, God can take a Satan-ruled man, one who is called sin, because he is identified with Satan, he is a child of Satan. God can redeem him. The Lord can take him out of this condition and impart to him his own nature, making him his own child. Now, in 1 John 5, 12, 
tells us what he has received. He that hath the Son hath the life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not the life. These things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life, even unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. And John six forty seven, the scripture says, He that believeth hath eternal life. That means a believer is a possessor. There is no believing without possession. If I believe that God laid my sins upon Jesus and that Jesus was my substitute, that he died in my stead, that he rose because he had put my sin away and had obtained justification for me, the moment I believe, I receive eternal life and become God's child. Now, believing is having. Next, he gives to us righteousness. It is a revelation of the righteousness of God that becomes available to the man who hath faith in Jesus. Now, God becomes the righteousness of the man who takes Christ as his Savior and crowns him as Lord of his life. <clears throat> and in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, Him who knew no sin, he made to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him or in Christ. He not only becomes our righteousness, but by the impartation of his nature, we become his righteousness, his sons, and his daughters. Now, Hebrews 10.38 says, My righteous one shall live by faith. We are called his righteous ones. Not only are we the righteousness of God, but we have become the sons and daughters of God. Think about that. Think of yourself as a king's kid, a daughter or a son of the king of the universe. That, that just blows you away when you begin to see yourself like the scripture says we are. The climax of the revelation that God gave to Paul, recorded in Romans 8, 14 through 17, states this clearly. Now, I want to read this for you out of Romans 8. It says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you receive not the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. And if children then we are heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Now, this is sonship with all its glorious privileges. Now, Paul does not stop there either. These sons and daughters are partakers not only of God's nature, but of God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, in Romans 8, 11, he says, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raises up Christ from the dead, well, he shall give life also to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwelleth in you. Now, in 1 Corinthians 6:19, we read here, 
Know ye not that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, which is in you? This all comes to the believer by faith. <clears throat> there is no sense knowledge faith required. You do not need to have any feelings to prove that you are born again. All that is necessary is the Word of God. If you believe God's Word, all you need to do is hide it in your heart and act on it and let the confession of the Word of God come out of your mouth in a positive way and you will see the power of the Word of God come to life in your life. Now Romans 10.9 declares, Because if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord, and shall believe in thy heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You do not need sense knowledge evidence to prove that you have received the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 11 verse 13 says, How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Your confidence is not in any physical manifestation or physical evidence. It is always in the simple word of God. If you ask for the Holy Spirit, you must believe with all your heart that you have received him. So ask every day that the Lord fill you with the mighty Holy Spirit and his power. Now, Isaiah 55:11. this is a very uh, well-known scripture. It says, no word from God is void of power. In other words, it's, an, it's not void of power or ability to make it good. These mighty scriptures gives one ground for faith. We have confidence when we know what we are in Christ. Unbelief is largely the result of ignorance of what we are in Christ. When I began to see what God had done for me in Christ, my whole being was thrilled. Faith was an unconscious fact. It was mine. He did all these wonderful things for me, I said. Thank you, Father. And I began to enjoy my rights in Christ. Praise the name of Jesus. So when you begin to learn who you are in Christ, and that all these mighty promises and blessings are yours, you can begin to walk in the mighty power of the Spirit. You begin to pray. You begin to quote God's Word back to Him. You'll stand on these mighty promises and you'll come in for yourself or somebody else, and you'll say, Father, in the name of Jesus right here, you made me this promise, and because it is written, this promise is I can have what I need for myself or for my friend or for my relative. So I come before you, believing it's done. I ask you to do this, and I ask you to do that, Father, in the name of Jesus, and I thank you for your word. I thank you that it cannot be broken, and I thank you that it's done because it is written. And I worship you and praise you and thank you for the answer. And you will begin to see great and awesome answers to your prayers. Praise the Lord Jesus for his word. Now there is many enemies to your faith. Now the devil is out there and he will deceive you. And if you don't think he wants to get you to doubt. Now I'm going to prove to you from the scriptures in Matthew 14 that our Lord is a God that requires faith with no doubt. 
Now then, I've come to realize that most Christians, most people that I've met were just like I was for the first 40 years of my life. I really didn't know the Word of God, and the part that I did know, I didn't believe it, re didn't really believe it, uh, because I never acted on it. <clears throat> so I'm going to tell you that there's an enemy out there, and he will do you just like he did Peter in Matthew 14. When that fourth watch of the morning, when Jesus came walking across the Sea of Galilee, and they saw him, and they cried out, It's a ghost. He said, No, guys, it's just me. Peter said, Lord, if that's really you, let me come to you on the water. Well, the Lord gave him one word. He said, come. So Peter took that one word. He stepped down out of the boat onto the water. And I'm sure all the rest of those disciples was hollering, don't step in that lake. You know you will drown. But Peter had faith. He had faith in what the Lord had told him. So he stepped down, and the water was solid, and he walked on the water toward the Lord. Now, as he walked on that water, I can just imagine Satan bombarding his mind. I can just imagine the devil creating more wind to raise the waves higher and everything to try to put fear in Peter's heart. Because it says, Peter walked on the water until he began to take his eyes off of Jesus and look at the waves and the wind, and he saw that they were boisterous. And when he did, he began to sink. And as he began to sink, he cried out to the Lord. He said, Lord, save me. And the scripture says in Matthew 14 that Jesus reached out his hand, took Peter's hand, and raised him back up, and looked him right in the eye. And he said, Peter, you of little faith, why did you doubt which means that if he had not doubted, he would not have ever sunk in that water. He would have still been walking on that water. So we definitely have some enemies to our faith. And one of those, of course, is the devil and that doubt that he puts in there. Now, another one of these enemies to our faith is hope. Now, people are always saying, I hope that I will be healed. I hope that I will have money to meet my bills. I hope that I will have strength to do my work. It is an enemy of your faith. It stands in the way of faith. I say to you, will you be healed when I pray for you? And you reply, I certainly hope so. That means that you will not be healed. There is no healing power in hope. As far as faith is concerned, hope is a delusion. Faith is always present tense. Therefore, because hope is always future, it is a hindrance to faith. We have hope of heaven. When we reach heaven, we shall hope no longer. Now, another enemy to your faith is mental assent. This is another great enemy to our faith. A dangerous enemy. Now, mental assent claims the whole Bible to be true. Now, I'm, I know this is the way most Christians are just like I used to be. If somebody said, do you believe the Bible's true? I'd say, absolutely. Well, do you know it? Well, no, I don't know it. Well, even after I did learn it, still, I had problems believing that I could do all the things the Lord said I could do. Well, that's mental assent. 
And people that are mental assenters say they believe every word of the Word of God, but they do not act upon it. That's just like this man one time. He called me into their Sunday school room and he says, Thurman, how come it is when you lay hands on the sick, they get well? I said, well, when's the last time you laid hands on some sick person and asked God to heal them? He said, I've never done that. I said, that's why you don't never see anybody get healed, because you put no actions to it. So I said, if you want to see God do mighty miracles in the area of healing, then you do like I do. You take the word of God, you go out and tell people that's what Jesus said. Now, you, when you pray, you lay your hands on them and tell them, if you believe God, I guarantee you he's healed you because it's written in this book. And I said, when you start believing it like I do, you will start seeing the Lord do mighty, mighty, wonderful things. Now then, one time I was called uh, to pray for a woman with cancer. Now, I've been called to do this many times, but both this woman and her husband had been outstanding Bible teachers for years. And as I sat by the bedside and opened the Word, she kept saying, I, I know those scriptures. I believe that. I have known the scripture since I was a child. And this woman knew all these mighty promises. I went away from that house totally confused, defeated. I could not understand where the problem lay. When I arrived home, I walked up and down and praying, saying, Lord, why is she not healed? She is a good woman. She says she believes your word and has been a teacher of your word for many years. Then the Spirit of God spoke to me and made me see that she only mentally assented to the word. She didn't believe it. Believing is acting on the word. She had never acted on the word for her healing. If she had believed, we'd have prayed for her. She'd have got up off that bed and said, Praise God, the word says I'm healed. I'm healed. I'm going home. Anyway, a few days later, I went to that house again. This time, I understood her case. As I began to open the word to her, I have believed that all my life, she said. No, you have never believed it. For if you had, you would be out of bed doing your work. You only mentally assent to it. Then I opened the word to her again, and she said, You know, that's the truth. I don't believe it. I can see it now. I can see how I have never believed it. I have always just mentally assented to it. Now, you will find that in many cases, where men and women have mental assent instead of faith, their creed or dogma has taken the place of the word's reality. Now, sense knowledge faith requires sense evidence. This is the kind of faith Thomas had when he said over there in John 20, starting verse 24, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the prints of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Then Jesus, a little later, suddenly appeared to him and said, Reach hither thy finger, and see my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and put it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said unto him, because you have seen me, you have believed, Thomas. But blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. 
Now here we see two kinds of faith in contrast with each other. There is a Bible faith and a sense knowledge faith. The faith that Mary and Martha and the others had in Jesus during his earth walk was sense knowledge faith. They believed in Jesus because they saw the miracles he performed. The Jews said, What doest thou for a sign that we may see and believe? Now this sense knowledge faith has almost driven real faith out of the church. This kind of faith does not give the word its rightful place. Men carry the word to church, but they do not trust it. They trust in their feelings and their emotions and what they can see and hear or taste or smell. Real faith is acting on the word independently of any sense evidence. There are two kinds of unbelief. The first is based on lack of knowledge. The man does not believe the word because he knows nothing about it. So he does not believe in the Father's revelation to him. Now this has got to be, I, just like the other night I went to minister to a young lady. And I walked in and she needed a healing. I said, young lady, do you have faith? She said, sir, I have great faith. I said, all right, then quote me your favorite healing verse. And that woman could not quote me one single verse from the Word of God. After a few minutes, I finally told her, I said, young woman, you don't not only have great faith, you have no faith. I said, until you and the Word become one, you will not be able to receive your healing. Now, a great number of unbelievers are ignorant of the things to believe. They do not know, so you cannot believe. I keep telling people, you cannot go beyond knowledge on any subject. And the Word of God is no different. If you don't know the Word of God, you can't act on what you don't know. Now, the, another type of unbelief is mentioned in Hebrews 4.11. It is unpersuadableness. Let us therefore give diligence to enter into that rest that no man fall after the same example of disobedience. Now, this Greek word is translated unbelief in the King James Version. It is disobedience in the American Revised and means unpersuadableness. This means that the man is unwilling to allow the word to govern him. I think that's where so many of us live today. We want to go by what we see, hear, smell, and taste. We will not act on the word. It is a refusal to act on knowledge. Even after you take the word of God and show this to some people, they still will lay there with their Bible in their lap saying, I'm trusting God to heal me. And a doctor will say, but we need to do this surgery. And they say, fine, let's go ahead and do it. That's, there's no faith in that. That's not acting on the Word of God. The Word of God says, with his stripes, you were healed. You absolutely refuse to act on knowledge after you get it. He who knows what the Word teaches but refuses to act on it will absolutely never cause you to be healed. Believing is an act of the will. He can act on the word if he will. Believing is willing to do his will. Disobedience 
is an unpersuadable attitude toward the word. Then unbelief is either ignorance of the word or unpersuadableness to act upon it. Now, any time you can take the word of God and you can show men and women, just like in the area of salvation, it says very clearly in Romans 10, that if you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe with your heart that the Father raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you can tell that to people, and they absolutely will refuse to act on it. So those people, even though they have heard the gospel, you have proclaimed it to them, that Jesus came and died for the sins of the whole world. That if you will just confess him with your mouth and believe with your heart, the Father raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And they absolutely refuse to act on it. Or they will say, well, I'll do that someday, but not today. And if those people die, they're going to go straight to hell. And all the time, the price for their salvation was paid. All they had to do was say, yes, Lord, I see it, I believe it, I accept it, I receive it. It's mine because it's written in the word of God. And they become born again, sons and daughters of the king of the universe. Now then, when it comes to the area of healing, if you're worshiping the Lord, praising him, thanking him, and acting on his word, if you're constantly calling Jesus your healer, one of the things that people do not do, they don't get up in the morning when they're well, but people surely don't do this. They get it. We should get up in the morning thanking the Lord, worshiping him, praising him for his mighty word, thanking him that he is our savior, thanking him that he's our Lord, thanking him that he's our healer, that he's our deliverer, that he's our provider, that he's our strength. We should quote the word of the living God to our heavenly father as we pray. Throughout the day, we should do that. We should hide his word in our heart. We should meditate on it day and night. We should act on his word. And if we will act on his word, if we will walk in a love relationship, a love relationship with the Lord, go to church every time the doors open, walk in a love relationship, hold no grudges against anybody, and tithe. And give to the poor and the needy. And do all the things that the Lord tells us to do in his word. Please the Lord. If you don't please God, you're not going to get anything from him. You should wake up every morning praising him, thanking him, worshiping him. He says, I inhabit the praise of my people. We should wake up worshiping the Lord, praising the Lord doing all the things that he tells us to do. Because there is a statement in Romans 14, verse 23, that I wonder, as I read that statement, I wonder how many times in a day that I sin. The Lord says, anything that's not of faith is sin. Now then, it makes you wonder, doesn't it, how many times in a day we sin. But every time we don't trust God to meet all of our needs in every circumstance, we have just stepped outside of the realm of faith. And when we do that, we have just sinned. And the Lord says to them that draw back 
from faith, I am not pleased with you. So whatever we do, we need to stay in the realm of faith. Did you know a man with a humble and hungry heart finds great favor with God? When you bow down before God and show him that you mean business and worship him and praise him, God just loves that. He loves to see you worshiping and praising him. He just loves to see you walking the floor and hearing you confess that he is God. He loves to hear you confess these things. He loves to hear you confess that you are my Lord, my Savior. By the stripes of Jesus, the Son of God, I am healed. Oh God, by the stripes of Jesus, I am healed. By the stripes of Jesus, I am healed. Health belongs to me. We need to talk to the Lord like he's our best friend. We need to tell him that we're going to stay out of this sin business because I know that he hates doubt and I know that he hates sin and that I know that unless I believe him by faith, unless I believe that those stripes of Jesus were for my healing, I know I will miss out on my healing and I will be slaughtered by some disease unless I eat from his table daily. Did you know that you can give money to God, you can sing songs to God, you can pray and do all kinds of things till your jaw gets sore. You can do all kinds of things, but without faith, it is impossible to please the Lord. That's right. That's what I'm telling you. Without the Word of God, he says in Romans 14:23 that anything that's not of faith is sin. So whatever you do, don't sin because to get anything from the Lord, you're going to have to make him happy. You're going to have to please him, and if you do, then you can get anything from the Lord. Uh, I've understood that uh, there, is faith, there is a faith that works, and that's a God kind of faith, because the Lord clearly told us that in Mark 11:22. He said, if you have the God kind of faith, we can speak to a mountain, and it will move. So now then, to make this faith work, I'm going to read to you something uh, that's written here in James chapter 2, uh, verse 14. Now, this shows here that not only do we have to have the right confession for our faith to work, but we must have corresponding actions to make it work. And in James chapter 2, verse 14, the scripture says, What good is it, my brethren? If a man professes to have faith, and yet his actions do not correspond to it. So now you can, we're going down here to verse 18, and it's, you notice there that his faith was cooperating with his actions, and that by his actions his faith was perfected. Now, I'm convinced one of the gravest mistakes that many believers make is to confess their faith in the Word and at the same time contradict their confession by wrong actions. A woman said to me one time, I cannot understand why I did not get my healing. I have prayed and prayed, and I know the Bible is true. So now I'm going to tell you something here that is the more I walk in faith, the more I understand these things in the Word of God. And I've seen some awesome miracles uh, in the last two years. And so this is what you have to ask people when they pray for healing. And you have to ask them, 
Well, are you still taking medicine? Oh, yes, she said. I'm going to the doctor, and I'm taking medicine. Well, then I read her this scripture that I have just quoted. Her actions did not correspond with her confession. She said she was trusting the Lord, and yet her trust was in medicine and not in his word. Now, there may be some times with some people that God will heal you by taking medicine. But I'm telling you, if you really want to see God's word work, you get that word in your heart, make sure you know it, make sure you know what it says, and that you can quote it, and then you act on God's word. And if you will, I guarantee if you're doing everything the scripture says, if you have your sins confessed, you're walking in a love relationship, you're being obedient to God's word, and you get this word hidden in your heart, then you believe it and you act on it, you will receive your needs, whatever they are, finances, healing, deliverance, whatever. You must trust them. You know, we say we trust the Father, for our finances, and at the same time, we are worrying and fretting on how we're going to pay our bills. Oh, yes, I trust the Lord, but oh, if I don't get a check this week, I don't know what I'm going to do. There is no faith in that. One minute we confess that no word from God can ever be forfeited, that he must keep his word with us, and that we know that he will, and the next moment, we are repudiating all that we have confessed. James tells us clearly there must be corresponding action. He says, Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deluding your own selves. <clears throat> now the action of a doer of the word coincides with his confession. Now, Jesus made us a tremendous statement over here. It took me a lot of years to understand, really, what this meant. And still, as I read this more and more, I get more and more revelation from this set of verses. Now, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 26 reads, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And then every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now, so many of us who profess Christ and who declare they believe the word from Genesis to Revelation, and they say it with a great deal of unction, are not doers of the word. They are talkers about the word. They have mentally assented to the fact that the word is true, and it does them no good. They are not making it their own. When I trust in the Word with all my heart and stop leaning upon sense reason, stop looking to people for deliverance, then there are corresponding actions. 
My actions are in perfect fellowship with my confession. It has taken some of us a long time to have corresponding action with our confession. But until there is corresponding action, there will be continual failing. Now I may confess as loudly as I please that God is the strength of my life and at the same time tell about my weakness, my inability, and my lack of faith. Now there is no corresponding action in this type of profession. I am resorting to human means rather than trusting in the Lord altogether. Now that is bound to bring confusion to my spirit and weakness and failure in my life. Now then, let's turn over to 1 Peter 5, 7, and I want to read this scripture to you here. He says, Cast all of your fears or all of your anxiety upon him, for he careth for you. Now regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the influences about us, let us turn every problem into his care. Now your worst enemy is yourself. It has come through sense knowledge that would limit you to your own ability. Now, the language of the senses is, I can't. I haven't the ability. I haven't the strength. I don't have the opportunity. I have no education. I have been limited. The language of faith says, what Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then uh, Jesus told us also in Mark 9.23, If you can believe, nothing shall be impossible with you. Now those are awesome statements that our king has told us. Who is it that strengthens me? Well, of course, it is my Father God. I can do all things through him. I cannot be conquered. I am more than a conqueror. I cannot be defeated. There isn't force enough in all the world to conquer me or you if you will dwell in Christ. There's no devil in hell can beat you. There's no sickness and disease that can take you down. Not only am I born of God, a partaker of God's nature and life, but I have God dwelling in me. And I have the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwelling in me. I have God's wisdom, God's strength, God's ability. I am learning how to let him govern my intellect, letting Jesus think through me, use my vocal faculties. I am daring to think his thoughts after him. I am daring to believe that it is God who is at work within me, and that he will work his own good pleasure. I am daring to say in the presence of my old enemies, failure, weakness, want, lack of opportunity, lack of knowledge, lack of strong friends, and a thousand others, God is my ability. God has made me greater than my enemies. God has made me put my heel on the neck of weakness, of fear, of inability, and I stand and declare that whosoever believeth in Jesus shall not be put to shame. I cannot be put to shame. My weaknesses are routed. The strength of God is mine. The ability of God has made, taken me captive, and I 
will not be held captive by nothing else. I am going to be a captive of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to do all the things he told me I could do because I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. I am saved. I am healed. I am delivered. And I am more than a conqueror through Christ that loves me. Now that is faith speaking, real corresponding action. Now for years... I have been eagerly searching for a satisfactory explanation of Romans 10.10, which says, With the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Now you understand that the word heart is used illustratively because the heart is the life center of man. It is the great pumping station that keeps the physical body alive. Now we have come to know that when God speaks of the heart, he means the human spirit. We know that man is a spirit, and he is in the same class as God. We know that God is a spirit, and that he became a man and took on a man's body, and when he did it, he was no less God than he was before. He took the physical body. Now, we know that man, at death, leaves his physical body and is no less man than he was when he had his physical body. We know that man cannot know God through sense knowledge. Now, God is only revealed to man through his spirit. It is the spirit of man that contacts God. We know that spiritual things are just as real as material things. God is just as real a person as though he had a physical body. Now, Jesus, with his physical body, which is now in heaven, is no more real than the Holy Spirit or the Father. Now, in 1 Peter 3, 4, our spirit is called the hidden man of the heart. And in Romans seven twenty two, it is called the inward man. Now, this inward man and the hidden man gives us gives us God's definition of the human spirit. The real man is a spirit. He has a body and a soul. Now, the soul contacts the intellectual realm. Now, that's your mind, your will, and your emotions. Now, the physical body contacts the physical realm, and the spirit, the spiritual realm. Now, that explains how the natural man understandeth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually understood only. Now, that's in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Now, the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians gives us a contrast between sense knowledge and spiritual knowledge, or between the senses and the Spirit. You understand that all the knowledge that men have outside of revelation knowledge has come to him through these five doors to the man. <clears throat> now, of course, we know what our five senses are. Your eyes, your you know, smell, your ears, your mouth, and your feeling, your touch. <clears throat> now, they are the means of communication between material things and intellectual. The mind can receive nothing unless it receives it through these five senses. 
if the five senses were destroyed, man would have no means of receiving knowledge. He could not know himself, nor the material world. Now, in 2 Corinthians 4.16, says, Wherefore we faint not, but through our outward man, though our outward man is decaying, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. <clears throat> and in Ephesians 3.16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, that you may be made strong with his ability through his spirit in the inward man. Now, when a man is born again, eternal life is imparted to his spirit to this inward man. When the Holy Spirit comes into his body, he comes in to dwell in his spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit cannot communicate directly with our minds, but he must communicate with us through our spirit, which reaches and influences our intellectual processes. The Spirit has a voice. We call that voice conscience, or some people call it intuition, some people a hunch or, or guidance. If we get a hunch, and if we follow it, we do not make a mistake. Now, I really don't like to use that word hunch, but it is in common use today, and many people say that. We all know that if we had followed an inward voice, we would have never made some of the decisions that we've made in life. We would have not made some of the investments where we lost money. We would have never chosen certain people as companions. We would never have gone into business with certain people. And how many times have I heard people say, you know, when I, when I started to go in business with that man, something in me told me not to do that. Or how many men and women have I heard say, you know, there was just something in me that told me I shouldn't marry that man. But I didn't listen to that inward voice because I thought he was the greatest guy, a handsome guy. I went ahead and married him. And it's literally been a devastating life. If we had only listened to that inward voice, we would have never made those mistakes. We would almost never make a mistake if we would learn to listen or to give heed to our spirits. One of the greatest mistakes that we have made in our intellectual culture has been the ignoring of the spirit. There's only one place in the world you can learn about your spirit, and that's through the Word of God. Now, knowledge of our intellect has taken the throne, and our spirit has been locked away in a prison. Consequently, we are continually making mistakes because our spirit, which should guide us, is not permitted to function. Knowledge is something that we acquire through the senses, through reading, through travel, and hearing. Now, wisdom is the ability to use the knowledge to profit. Now, wisdom does not come through the senses. Wisdom comes from our spirit. James says it comes down from above, that is, divine wisdom. God's wisdom imparted to us. Now, the book of James also said in chapter 1 that if any man lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives liberally to all without finding fault. But when you ask, you must believe you have received, 
or that man need not think he will receive anything from the Lord. So when you ask God for anything, you must believe you've received it. And if you don't, you won't get anything. Now then, the man who shuts his spirit away and makes a prisoner of it, who never listens to it, who never obeys it, becomes crippled and is an easy prey to selfish and destroying people. The one who lets the spirit gain the mastery and the influence over him at crisis times is the one who climbs to the top. What does it mean to believe with the heart? It means to believe with your spirit. We cannot believe with our intellect. That goes without argument. Faith is a product of the spirit. The inward convictions, this thing called assurance, is a child of our spirits. We don't know why we know. We cannot explain it, and yet we know that we know. <clears throat> the other day I was unfolding the word to a woman who had a very painful sickness. As I opened the scripture step by step, all of a sudden she said, I see it. By his stripes I am healed. I said, how do you know you are healed? She said, because the word declares that I am. I might stop right here on this and tell you a magnificent thing in this teaching, how this faith works. Because this last year, in 1999, on June, I mean on March the 4th, I went to Corpus Christi and there was a woman that was 55 years old by the name of Judy Prince that was on her deathbed. She had about one week left to live. She had, she was a Baptist woman. She had had breast cancer for two years and she had, her intestines were blocked and she hadn't been able to eat a bite of food in over three weeks. She had two big tumors in her colon and she had, the cancer was coming out her head. And when she told me all these things, she said, but I am trusting Jesus to heal me. I said, ma'am. If you're trusting Jesus to heal you, you've missed it. I said, Jesus is not going to heal you. She said, he's not? I said, no, ma'am. I'm going to prove to you today beyond a shadow of a doubt who the enemy is, and it is Satan and his demons. And I'm going to prove to you that our Savior Jesus destroyed him on the cross 2,000 years ago. And I'm going to prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus healed you on the cross 2,000 years ago. Now it's up to you to take it away from the enemy by force with it is written. And five hours later, I asked this woman a question. After five hours of intensive teaching of the Word of God, I asked her, did she now believe that she was healed? And she said, yes. She said, you come over here and cast this demon of hell out of me right now in the name of Jesus, and I'm going to be healed right now. So with that kind of faith, I went over and bound that spirit of infirmity, commanded him to leave, and asked the Father in the name of Jesus to send the Holy Spirit in to restore everything the devil had messed up in this lovely woman's body. And she was miraculously healed. She got up off of her deathbed, 
and went with her husband to take me back to the airplane. And that's been nine months ago, and she is still miraculously, wonderfully healed. Then three weeks after that, I taught a woman and her husband that had all she had Alzheimer's and hadn't been able to drive a car for a year and a half. And I spent three and a half hours teaching them the word, and he stood in faith for her. And when I prayed for her, within three weeks' time, she was totally recovered, got her driver's license back, and driving a car. And in two weeks after that, a little woman, 52 years old, had been in a wheelchair with hepatitis C for 11 years. I spent over two hours teaching her the word. She locked on to it. I bound her sickness, commanded it to leave, and spoke the healing power of Jesus in her. And then I commanded her to rise and walk in the name of Jesus. And she got out of the wheelchair and walked off. Now that's what the right kind of faith can do for you. Now sense knowledge will tell you that after you pray for you, if you prayed for a sore to be removed, that the sore is still in your body. And you can feel the pain even now. Yet this woman arose above sense knowledge and sense evidence and declared that she was healed. As I prayed for, the, for this woman, her faith abundantly drove out the, the disease. The thing that meant death to her was gone. Why? Because in her heart she believed the word of God and in her spirit she believed it. Now all of these people that I just told you about met this criteria and as I prayed for them it was their faith that drove out this sickness now how does our spirit get faith that our intellect cannot obtain through the word that's why I've done so much teaching to all of these people now Jesus said man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God now he said that in Matthew 4.4 he is speaking of spiritual food. He is using sense knowledge terms to convey a spiritual truth. Our spirits become filled with assurance as we meditate in the Word. For many years I have walked by faith, for finances, for physical needs. Now I've grown to see that the Word is the food that builds the spirit and it makes it strong and it gives to it its quiet assurance. The senses believe in what they can hear and see and feel. The spirit believes in the word, regardless of what you see or what you hear or what you feel. The people who are prayed for again and again but do not get their healing have sense, knowledge, faith only. They do not have revelation faith. They have faith in man faith in the anointing oil, faith in someone else's prayer, or faith in some person or organization. They do not have faith in the Word. And James 5.14, he illustrates this. It's a, this is an awesome scripture for healing. It says, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. Then it tells how the prayer of a righteous man availeth much in its working. Now this whole picture is a sense, knowledge, faith picture. 
if the one who was sick had known that by his stripes he was healed, he would have had no need to call for the elders of the church. You don't need the elders of the church to pray for you if you've got revelation faith. You're going to walk healed. But because he did not know it, in his desperation he turned to the Lord and to the elders. That's unfortunate today that many people don't even do that. They just go to the doctor and die. Now here is a demonstration of the grace of God in meeting man on his own level as Jesus did in the Incarnation. When the Word was made flesh and dwelt among men, he came into man's sense-knowledge realm so that man could see him, hear him, and touch him. Everything, everything connected with the earth walk of Jesus, as far as man could see, was in the sense realm. There was no faith in Jesus from a spiritual point of view. They believed because they saw the miracles and ate the bread. When he died on the cross, there was no spiritual apprehension. They did not know that he was dying for their sins. They thought he was dying as a martyr for his ideals. Sense knowledge holds the same conception today. The scholastic world believes Jesus died for his convictions. Now, at the crucifixion, sense, knowledge, faith broke down. To believe with all our hearts is to believe independently of sense, knowledge. Our spirits respond to our yielding to the Lordship of Jesus. Now, the key to biblical faith is a recognition of the Lordship of Jesus by the heart. In 1 Peter 3.15, it says, But sanctify in your heart Christ as Lord. Sanctify means to separate or set apart. We set Christ apart in our hearts. Now, when we crown Jesus as Lord of our lives, we crown his word as Lord of our lives. This gives the word its proper place. Now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. His word is in our hearts. So really, if the word is in our heart, Jesus is in our heart. We give to that word its place, and when we do, faith becomes perfectly natural. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, it starts out reading, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not unto your own understanding or sense knowledge. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Be not wise in your own conceit. Now, in other words, be not wise with sense knowledge, which leads us to repudiate the word or to act independently of it. Now, in 2 Corinthians 10.3, he says, Casting down reasonings and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of the word of God, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, this is very important if we want to walk by faith. The word must be superior to sense knowledge, whether the sense knowledge be ours or someone else's. We want to remember that sense knowledge is always limited. No man has perfect sense knowledge. Now, the word of God is perfect. This revelation is his perfect revelation and it meets every crisis and every need of our lives every day. 
If we trust this word with all our hearts, then there comes a quietness and rest into our spirits. Now, believing is knowing. We know that the word of God is true. When he says, and my God shall supply every need of yours, we simply know in our spirits that every need will be supplied and we don't worry and we have no anxiety. Our hearts take courage as we read the word. Our assurance becomes deeper. Now, this is assurance which is independent of sense evidence. It may contradict sense evidence as it often does, but we know that spiritual things are as real as material things. In fact, we know that spiritual things are superior to physical things, for God, a spirit, created all physical things. We know that spiritual forces are stronger than physical forces, because we know that 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We know that the Creator, we know that this Greater One, the Creator One, is Master of disease and weakness. And we trust in Him with all our hearts. He rises up in us and gives our minds illumination, which they can get from no other source. We know we cannot be conquered. We know because we believe in the Word of God. Now, in John six forty seven, Jesus said, He that believeth hath eternal life. Now, believing is having. It is possession. Now, mental assent admires the word, confesses that the word is true and very desirable, but it doesn't possess the word in their heart. Believing ends in the glad confession. It is mine. I have it. How little real action on the word we see today. You remember the man who was brought into the presence of Jesus by four of his friends in Mark 2, 1 through 12? Jesus said to him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Now had this man not acted on the master's words, he never would have been healed. But because he acted, he was healed. Now just think of that. He's there he was, laying there sick and afflicted, and they all brought him in and laid him down. And Jesus just merely looked over at him and says, You're healed. Rise up, take your bed, and walk. Now, that man could have said, But Lord, I'm sick. I'm afflicted. I hurt. I can't do that. But he didn't. He acted. And when he acted, he got his healing. And another example here is in Luke 5, 5, where Peter said, but at thy word I will let down the net. What a change would come into some of our lives if we would all get to where we would say, at your word, Lord, I will. Because look what happened to Peter when he let the net down. He caught all those fish. We have clung to the theories of men and ignored the living word of the living God. Healing and victory belongs to you if you're a Christian. When Jesus said to Peter, come, walk the ways with me, Peter acted on the word. Now, what kind of faith do you think it took when Jesus merely gave him one word? He said, come, Peter, and Peter stepped down out of that boat and walked on the water. Now, when the servants filled the jars with water, 
they obeyed what Jesus said do, and the water became wine over in John 2. We mentally assent to the integrity and the reality of the word, but we do not act on it. Until we act upon it, it does not become a reality to us. You may hold the resurrection true as a great doctrine or dogma, but it will not mean anything to you until you say, He died for me. He conquered death and hell for me. He arose from the dead for me. And because he arose, I am a victor. I am more than a conqueror of Satan today. Satan has no dominion over me because I am free. Then the word becomes something more than a doctrine or a theory. It becomes a reality. And it will set you on fire for the word of God when you learn these things. Now, people who act on the word receive things. Today, the one who acts on the word receives. You act faith. You talk faith. Your actions and your words agree. You are a believer. It took faith to get into the family of God. But after you get into the family, all things are yours. Now, in 1 Corinthians 3, 21, when he says, all things are yours. I want to read you that verse. I'm going to read this out of the Living Bible. It says, so don't be proud of following the wise men of this world, for God has already given you everything you need. He has given you Paul and Apollos and Peter as your helpers. He has given you the whole world to use, and life and even death are your servants. He has given you all of the present and all of the future, all are yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ is God's. Now, is that an awesome promise or not? As Christians, all things belong to us. Praise the Lord. Now, it took faith to become a child of God, but the children own all that Christ has got for us. When God says, I watch over my word to perform it, then you may be certain that if you accept Isaiah 53, 3, 4, 5, and 6, that just as surely as God sits on his throne, healing is bound to be yours. Because in those scriptures, he says that he has borne our pain, he's borne our sicknesses with his stripes, he's taken care of our sin problem and everything. All that is in Isaiah 53. Now, all you need to do is act on the word. It is deeply important that you learn this simple little lesson. It is not struggling or praying or crying. That won't get you anywhere. It is acting in faith on what God has spoken that brings results. I've seen this many times. I've seen people that have struggled. They have prayed. They have cried. They have begged and pleaded God to do something for them, and nothing happened. But when they take the word and when they act on the word that God has spoken, it brings great results. I've seen people miraculously healed instantly after they had before when they had begged or pleaded with God for weeks or even months. And even some were on their deathbeds. And now when they get a hold of this, they get up and walk out healed. I've seen this many times. Now then, the word faith is a noun. And the word believe is a verb. 
So believing is really acting on the Word. That's what that whole thing's all about. It is simply acting on the Word of God as you have acted on the Word of a physician, the Word of a lawyer, or the Word of a loved one. You don't ask the question, do I believe or have I faith? You simply say, that is what God has said, and you act accordingly. Or did God say that by his stripes I am healed? If God said it, then I must be healed, and I will act on what God has spoken. I will get up and go out of this place. I don't need a doctor. If Jesus said I'm healed, I'm healed. Bless God. Now, faith is the result of action. Believing is taking the step up to the object, the thing you want. Faith is having arrived. Now, listen to that again. Let me quote that one more time. Believing is taking that final step up to the object, the thing that you want. Faith is having arrived at that point. Instead of using the word believe, I use the words act on his word. That is simpler, it is perfectly scriptural, and it is just what Jesus meant. It is a remarkable thing that nowhere in the epistles did Paul urge believers to believe or have faith. Our urging men to believe is the result of the words having lost its reality. What does Paul tell us? Let me show you what he says over here in Ephesians 1.3. When I got a hold of this, this so blessed my spirit and my soul. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Now then, isn't that awesome? If he has blessed you with every spiritual blessing, then you are blessed. You have them. You don't need to ask for the spiritual blessings. All you need to do is thank him that you have them. They are yours. All you have to say is, Father, I thank you for my healing. I thank you for my deliverance. All that Jesus did was to act upon his Father's word. All that Peter did was to act upon the word which Christ had given him. It was the word of Christ in Peter's mouth that he acted upon that brought salvation and healing and deliverance to the people. We may preach the word, but if we do not practice it, it will produce no results. We may preach healing and declare our faith in healing, but that is of no value unless we practice it. James tells us that faith without corresponding action is dead. When we act on the word, we show our faith. We know that no word from God is void of power or void of God's ability because he told us that in Luke 1.37. So we act on it. We fearlessly lay our hands on the sick. We command the disease to leave in Jesus' name, and it obeys. The sick one is healed. He said, I watch over my word to perform it. Now, we would never, I would never have had faith to have laid hands on the sick and claimed healing if it had not been told me to do it in the Word. But I read the Word, and the Word says, They that believe shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. And that's written in Mark chapter 16. Now, in the first part of that, Mark 16, 
17 and 18, he said, the first thing I can do is cast out a demon. So that's where I obtained my faith to speak directly to a demonic spirit and command it to leave in the name of Jesus. Because the Lord says, in my name, you shall cast out demons. Then he said, you shall lay hands on the sick in verse 18. And he said, they shall get well. Now, I have done that many times, and I've seen many people healed. That means the instant we accept Christ as our Savior, confess him as Lord, and receive eternal life, we can begin to function in the family of God. We can begin to lay hands on the sick and expect them to get well. Now, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's in Mark 16 also. The Greek word there for saved is all is sozo, which also means healed. Now, healing is the final analysis. It's the spiritual as well as physical. Healing in the final analysis is spiritual as well as physical. Now, disease manifests itself in the physical, but its roots, its substance, its reality are in the spirit. The word believe occurs about 100 times in the Gospel of John, but the word faith only occurs just a few times. The reason, evidently, is that he was talking to men outside of the body of Christ, to Jews under the law. They were not men of faith. They did not have faith. He was inciting them to believe. Now, let's look at some of these facts here about believing. Some people cannot believe the word because they have never confessed the lordship of Christ. Now, Jesus is not your Lord and your Savior, then you cannot confess the word because it will not work for you. Another reason that some people cannot believe is because the fear of man has held them in bondage. The world says you're not supposed to talk about Jesus, especially in the workplace. And many people, because of the fear of man or the fear of their jobs, which is, in essence, the fear of man, they are held in bondage and they will not talk about Jesus. This is one of Satan's strongest holds on man. Many times, a dead creed imprisons a man. You have been taught not to believe this and not to believe that. Your Christ has been lost in a maze of theological theories. Abandon yourself to the lordship of the word of the living God. Act on it. And God will become very, very, very real to you. Praise the Lord. Some of the things that belong to us, as I read there a while ago out of Ephesians 1, 3, I, you know, I want you to know that the Father in His great grace has given to the church enough armament to make it rich and strong. These things are all ours because in Ephesians 1, 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Now, if he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, then what in the world are these spiritual blessings? What does he mean by this? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. 
Now, in his redemptive work, all that God did in Christ from the time he was made sin until he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high belongs to the church, the body of Christ. We have been blessed. We're not going to be best. We have been. Jesus did nothing for himself, and the Father needed nothing. Now, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, Jesus was the Father's gift to a lost world. He has never taken back that gift. The world owns Jesus, whether or not it knows it or not. It, we have the ownership of Jesus and the name of Jesus. All that Jesus did in his substitutionary sacrifice is the private property of the individual for whom Jesus did it. The sinner does not need to beg God to save him. The work has already been accomplished. All that he needs to do is to accept it and thank God for it. Then it becomes his. Because let's see what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. It says, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, that no man should glory. So you see there, salvation is a free gift. Now, faith comes by acting on the Word of God. We act on the Word. We take Jesus Christ as our Savior. We confess Him as our Lord. And we receive eternal life that very moment. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. The work was accomplished before Christ arose from the dead. And that work belongs to us right now. All we need to do is to accept it. So this is one of those spiritual blessings. The believer does not need to ask the Father to heal him when he is sick. Because surely he hath borne our sicknesses and carried our diseases. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Now, this is in Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. So we don't even have to ask for healing. It was already ours. God laid our diseases on Jesus. He clearly states that in Isaiah 53. In verse 10, he states that it pleased Jehovah to make him sick with our sicknesses so that by his stripes we are healed. Now, if we are healed, then we do not need to pray for our healing. All we need to do is to rebuke the enemy in Jesus' name, order him to leave our bodies, and thank the Father for perfect healing. It is all so simple. I have done this before. I have had problems, and I have rebuked the enemy, and I have fought with the devil. And the longest time I've ever had to rebu rebuke and try to kick the devil out took me four days. Four days of continuous rebuking and binding and reading and quoting the word of God to the devil. And whenever I finally kicked him out, I was instantly healed. So I'm telling you. Whenever you've heard this old story that a Christian can't have a demon, all sickness and disease comes from the demons of hell, from Satan himself. No sickness and disease comes from God in heaven. There is no sickness and disease in heaven. 
So anytime any kind of sickness and disease, I don't care if it's just a headache, I don't care if it's a runny nose or a stopped-up head, don't accept anything from the enemy. Rebuke him and kick him out, and don't let him do this to you or your children, because all these spiritual blessings are yours. It is all so simple. We do not need to pray for the Lord to give us strength, because he is now the strength of our lives. Now, Psalms 27.1 says, Jehovah is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Jehovah is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? This belongs to us now as children of the King. He has become our light and our salvation. That is, he has become our knowledge and our redemption. He has become our deliverance. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says, But of him are you in Christ, who was made unto us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Now let us look at the things that God made Jesus become to us. We don't have to ask to be sanctified, because he is our sanctification. We don't have to be made righteousness, because he, he is our righteousness, and we became his righteousness in Christ Jesus. A believer in Christ is a possessor, whether he knows it or not. He that believeth hath eternal life. We cannot believe without having eternal life. We cannot believe Philippians 4.19. And my God shall supply every need of yours without being possessors of the things we need. Now, Paul recognized that believers were possessors. We don't have to try to believe that we are redeemed because we are redeemed, because Ephesians 1, 7 says so. We don't have to try to believe that we are in Christ because we are in him, because 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says so. We don't have to try to believe that we are the sons of God because we have been recreated. We are in his family because it's written in 1 John 3, 2. We don't have to try to believe that he will remit our sins and pray to that end because our sins are remitted and we stand acquitted, justified in his presence. Our old sin nature <clears throat> has been put away and we have received the nature of God in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. We don't have to try to believe that God will give us the Holy Spirit. Because in Luke eleven thirteen he says, all we need to do is invite him to come in. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? So ask and believe. Now, of course, here he's talking to a new babe in Christ who has never received the infilling power of the Holy Spirit. He is speaking to one who has received eternal life. Now he definitely asked the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead to come into his body and make his home there. Some other things that are the spiritual blessings that are ours. The name of Jesus belongs to us. Once you become a believer, that's automatically yours. God is our own Father. We call him Father, Abba Father. Jesus is our own Lord. He is our advocate, our, our attorney, and our master. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. 
Healing is absolutely ours. Strength is ours. Light and wisdom are ours. Eternal life belongs to us. He is our supply. He is our sufficiency. He is love in us. All these things are ours when we first believe and is not dependent upon our individual faith now as a believer. We possess it. We own it. It belongs to every child. All is in redemption. Just thank the Father. Praise Him whenever a need confronts you that is covered by redemption, and it is yours. Some may say, what then can we pray for if all these things belong to us? Well, I'll tell you what we can pray for. We can pray for a great needy world. We can pray for Christians who live in darkness beneath their privileges. And let me tell you, that is the majority of the Christian world. We can pray for deliverance for men and women from bondage, from which they do not know they have been freed. Because many of the Christians, absolutely many, many, many Christians do not know these things because they have not studied the word of the living God. And if they have studied it, if they've read these things, they have not come revelation knowledge to them. They just don't believe they're real. We just don't see ourselves as the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, redemption, you know, we need to enjoy all of these rights that are ours in Christ. I mean, we really need to learn how to live the abundant life that Christ gave us, because that's what he said in John 10, 10, I've come to give you life and give it to you abundantly. So we need to learn how to enjoy our rights in Christ, because redemption was God planned. Its results satisfy the heart of God and meet every need of man. Now, Christianity links us with God. If we are in union with God, we are successful. The mightiest forces of the universe are at our disposal because they're in us. Like Paul said, here's the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Just think, God is in you. Now, the ability of God is our heritage. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, You shall receive power or ability when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Just think, God's power or God's ability is at our disposal. So ask him every day to fill you to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. What a thrilling fact or thing this is. Just think, First John 4, 4, we don't realize the magnificence of this mighty promise. You are of God, my little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he, the Holy Spirit, that is in you, than he, the devil, that is in the world. We are of God. Our roots sink down into God. God's ability is our inheritance. Just as the roots draw the moisture out of the soil, so our roots in God draw the strength and vitality and ability of God. He is not only with us, but he becomes a part of us. He is in us. His nature is ours. It would help us to say over and over again during the day, God is in me. God's ability is mine. God's strength is mine. God's health is mine. His success is mine. I am a winner. I am more than a conqueror. 
I am a success because the greater one with his great ability is living in me. It is not our giving up, but it is our taking on that makes us conquerors. It is our enjoying this life with Christ. It is our living with him, fellowshipping with him, laboring with the man of the ages. We have the use of his name, the name that conquers, the name that is above every name. The name of Jesus can be used in the business world, in the scientific world. It can be used in every department of human endeavor. In my name, it is actually as though the master himself were here. Whatsoever you demand in my name, in John fourteen thirteen, I will do it for you. When we use that name, we bring Jesus Christ into actual contact with our problems. The source of all power is linked up with our lives and all the problems that confronts us every day. So praise God. Take the name. Use it. Use it against the forces of darkness. Kick out the demons of hell. Walk health, healthy. Walk healed. Walk delivered. Walk with your finances met. Learn to listen to your spirit. And when you hear your spirit tell you something, do it. Stay in the Word. Meditate in the Word. Tell the Lord you love Him and praise Him and worship Him. And all this great revelation will become yours because it's already in you. Praise His holy name. Now, there's lots of things that will hinder you in your faith. There's, I've spoken on other tapes about the many different hindrances to your faith, but I've come to realize that there is another one that is so powerful, and that is the, that faith, your faith, will never rise above your confession. I'm not referring to confession of sin, but the confession of the Word. Now, yes, I've come to realize that most people say when you need to confess, they think you need to confess sin. Yes, you did need to confess sin when you do sin, but technically speaking, we should have very little sin to confess because we ought to be walking holy before the King every day. But yes, if you do sin, you need to confess it, and the Lord will forgive you. But what I'm going to talk about here, I'm talking about the confession of the Word of God. I don't know how many people I hear going through life that confess that they're weak and they're sick. If we confess weakness and failure and sickness, we destroy faith. When we boldly make our confession that our diseases were laid on Jesus and we hold fast to that confession, we bring God on the scene. Now, a lack of knowledge will absolutely hinder us from making a bold confession. If you don't know what the Word says, you cannot confess something you do not know. We do not act on the Word beyond our knowledge. That's why it is so important that you study God's Word, that you hide it in your heart. Because faith grows with understanding of the Word. 
Now, I have learned this because I have studied the Word of God thousands of hours. And I've read it and spoke it and confessed it. And the greater my knowledge becomes, the greater my faith becomes. Now, a lack of knowledge of our redemption and of our redemptive rights is of times the reason for unbelief. You, you, you have to have this knowledge. You have to know what your redemption is and what it includes and what your redemptive rights are. <clears throat> if you have a lack of understanding of what the new creation means and what it actually is, it will hinder your faith life. Many people do not know that they have eternal life. They think of themselves as being saved from sin. They don't realize that you are a child of the king and eternal life has been imparted into you. Many people that I meet are not God inside minded. A lack of understanding of their place in Christ and of Christ's place in their lives, their lack of understanding of righteousness, what it is and what it gives, holds more people in bondage than perhaps anything else. Now, I know that when we are the righteousness of God in Christ, we step out of the narrow place of failure and weakness in which we have lived into the boundless fullness of God. Now, you must know that the Scripture says that you are the righteousness of God in Christ. How many times have I knelt to pray with someone or sat down in a chair or in a classroom and they would start saying, Oh God, we know we're just an old unworthy sinner. And oh God, and they start begging and pleading. You might as well get up and walk out because that prayer is not going to be answered. There is no faith in that prayer. That's not going to call the king on the scene. So you're not going to get your needs met. You've got to know that you are the righteousness of God in Christ because of what he did for you. You've got to know that you are a partaker of the divine nature of God and that all the promises of God are yes and amen to you. And when you begin to get that kind of knowledge in you, then you can bow before the throne of grace and you can come boldly in there and you can petition the king. And because of your knowledge of the word, you can get your prayers answered. Praise the Lord. Now, lack of understanding. The lack of understanding of our legal right to the use of the name of Jesus holds us in bondage and gives us a sense of weakness. But when we know what the name will do, we can defeat Satan and enjoy victory. Many are failures because of a lack of understanding about confession. Our faith keeps pace with our confession. If we confess sickness, we get sick. If we confess weakness, we get weak. We are held in bondage because we lack understanding about acting on the word. We try to believe. I don't know how many times I've heard people said, I'm going to try that Thurman. I'm going to see if that will work for me. And I just have to tell them, forget it. 
it will not work for you. You do not try anything in the kingdom of God. You have to do it. All that is necessary is for you to act on what God says. If we know that the word is true, we act as though it were true, and it becomes a reality in our lives. Real faith is a child of knowledge of the word. Isn't that awesome? Real faith. All you have to do is act on the word. That's like this young lady. <clears throat> I went over a few months ago to a hospital in Rockwall. A young man asked me to go over there. And there was a young woman, 40-something years old, laying there in the bed. Uh, she was laying there in the bed playing with a computer, what little she could. Uh, she was sitting up a little bit. She had all kinds of sickness and disease and breast cancer and I don't know what all they said she had. But they said she wasn't going to get well. But I went over there and took the Word of God and with that man, and we spent about two or two and a half hours showing her what the Word of God says, teaching her how to confess. And we cast that demon of sickness and disease out of her and spoke the name of Jesus over her. And then I gave her a list of things to confess. And within two days, that woman was miraculously healed and up out of that hospital and going strong. That just goes to show you what happens when you confess the right things. You call God on the scene and the devil flees. Praise the name of Jesus. Now, our faith is measured by our confession. Our usefulness in the Lord's work is measured by our confession. Sooner or later, we become what we confess. There is a confession of our heart and the confession of our lips. When the confession of our lips perfectly harmonize with the confession of our hearts, and these two confessions confirm God's word, then we become mighty as a prayer warrior in our prayer life. You begin to see many mighty things happen. But many people, if you will stop and listen to people talk, you will find that many people have a negative confession. They are always telling what they are not, telling of their weaknesses, of their failings, of their lack of money, their lack of ability, and their lack of health. Invariably, they go to the level of their confession. A spiritual law that few of us have recognized is that our confession rules us. In other words, you are whatever you have spoken out of your mouth. If you stop and think back over your life, you will find people that constantly go around confessing, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Nothing is impossible with me because God said I can do all things. I am strong. I am not weak. Why do you think the Lord said let the weak say they are strong? Because he knew it would make us strong. But when we confess 
failure, that's what we become. We are all a direct result of the confessions of our mouths over the years. When we confess His Lordship and our hearts fully agree, then we turn our lives over into His care. Now, when you do that, that is the end of worry, the end of fear, the beginning of real faith. When we believe that He arose from the dead for us, and that by His resurrection He conquered the adversary, Satan, and put him to naught for us, when this becomes the confession of our lips and our hearts, we become a mighty power for God. If we have accepted him as our Savior, and we've confessed Jesus as our Lord, we are new creations, because the Word says so. We have eternal life. We have the position of sons and daughters. We are joint heirs of God. And we are joint heirs with Jesus. Think about those things. Meditate on those things. When you begin to understand who you are in Christ, it will change the confession that comes out of your mouth. The very moment that you recognize the fact of his actual resurrection, then we know that the sin problem is settled. We know that Satan has been eternally defeated for us, the believers. We know that we are in union with deity, with God. We know that we have come into the family of God. We know that the ability of God has become ours. Think about that. The ability or the power of God has become mine and yours as sons and daughters. That's how Jesus could make that magnificent statement he made in John 14:12, when he says, Truly, truly I tell you, anyone that believes in me, Jesus, not only shall you do what I have been doing, but greater things than these that I've done shall you do in my name. Therefore, anything you demand from the Father in my name, you shall have it. Isn't that an awesome promise in John 14, 12, and 13? Now, these kind of promises may not dawn on us all at once, but as we study the Word and act upon it, as we live in it and let it live in us, it becomes slowly, perhaps, but surely a living reality. That reality is developed through our confession. We confess His Lordship, and we declare before the world that He is our shepherd. Praise the Lord, and that we do not want glory to God. And we'll also confess that He makes us to lie down in green pastures, and that He leads us beside the still waters. We confess that he has restored our soul to its sweet, wonderful fellowship with himself. We confess that he has made us new creations, that old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new, and that we have become the righteousness of God in Christ. We confess fearlessly before the world and utter oneness and union with him. 
we declare that he is the vine and we are the branches and that the branches and the vine are one. Just like it says in John 15 too. We declare that we are partakers of the divine nature that dwelt in him as, as he walked in Galilee. These are our confessions. When the word and us become one, these become our confessions. We have come to know that Satan is defeated, that demons are subject to us in the name of Jesus in our lips, that disease cannot exist in the presence of the living Christ in us. Now we dare to act on what we know the word teaches we dare to take our place and confess before the world that what the Word says about us is true. We are done with the confession of failure, of weakness, of inability, because God has become our power or our ability. God has become our sufficiency, and He has made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant. We confess that He has taken us out of the old realm where failure reigned into the new realm of victory, joy, and peace. As we make our confession and act on the word, our faith grows and our redemption becomes a reality. Praise God. Once you know who you are in Christ, you can do the same things that Jesus did because Jesus knew who he was. He always spoke the Father's words in his lips. Jesus knew that he was the revealed will of the Father. In fact, in John 4:34, Jesus said, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to accomplish his work. In John 5:30, I seek not mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. In John 6:38, I am come down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And John 8:29, For I do always the things that are pleasing to him. Now, folks, if we could always do the things that were pleasing to God our Father, it, it would be amazing what you could get from the Lord. So let's, let's strive to do the things that pleases him. Let's be obedient children. Let's stay in the word. Let's worship the king. Let's praise him. Let's confess him before men. And let's please the Lord. You know, as you think about Jesus, our master, you think about what a beautiful picture this was of our Lord. He had no personal ambitions. He had no personal ends to achieve. He was simply doing the will of his Father, unveiling the Father until he could say, He that has seen me has seen the Father, in John fourteen nine. The less worldly ambitions that we have, the less worldly desires, the more fully the Father will unveil himself to us. Now, his words in our lips will perform the same power are the same miracles that his words performed in the, the lips of Jesus. Self-seeking will limit you. The selfish person is a limited person. The person who lives in the word and lets the words live in him, he who practices the word and acts upon it, is the one who reveals the Father. 
When we act upon the Word of God, we unveil the Father to the world. They can see Him. Praise God. Now, I think that very few of us realize that our confessions imprison us. The right kind of confession will set us free. It is not only our thinking, it is our words, our conversation that builds power or weakness into us. Our words are the coins in the kingdom of faith. Our words snare us and hold us in captivity, or they set us free and become powerful in the lives of others. It is what we confess with our lips that really dominates our interbeing. We unconsciously confess what we believe. If we talk sickness, it is because we believe in sickness. If we talk weakness and failure, it is because we believe in weakness and failure. It is surprising what faith people have in wrong confessions, in wrong things. I've heard this from many faith people. Now think about the faith that people have in wrong things. Now think about what I'm going to tell you. When I say it is surprising what faith people have in wrong things. Think about now what I'm going to say. The faith that people have in wrong things. Now, I'm saying this over and over so you will get this. We firmly believe in cancer. We have faith that ulcers of the stomach will destroy you tuberculosis, and other incurable diseases. Their faith in that disease rises to the point where it utterly dominates them, rules them. They become its absolute slave. They get the habit of confessing their weakness, and their confession adds to the strength of their weakness. They confess their lack of faith, and they are filled with doubts. They confess their fear, and they become more fearful. They confess their fear of disease, and the disease grows under the confession. They confess their lack, and they build up a sense of lack, which gains its supremacy in their lives. When we realize that we will never rise above our confession. We're getting to the place where God can really begin to use us. When you begin to confess that by his stripes you were healed, and you hold fast to that confession, and no disease can stand before you. When you begin to confess that, your diseases, your tumors, your gorders, your cancer will disappear. When the Word becomes one in your heart and in your mouth, no disease can stand before you. Whether we realize it or not, we are sowing words, just as Jesus said in Luke 8:11. The seed is the Word of God. The sower went forth to sow, 
and the seed he was sowing was the word of God. Now that is the seed we should sow. Others are sowing sense knowledge seeds of fear and doubt. It is when we confess the word of God, declare with emphasis that by his stripes I am healed, or my God supplies every need of mine, and hold fast to our confession that we see our deliverance. Our words beget faith or doubt in others. Now in Revelation 12:11, this is the verse that we use, you might say as our motto for the tent makers ministry, that declares, and it took me many a year to understand this verse, but it says, and they, talking about the children of God, overcame him, which is Satan, because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. They overcame Satan with the word of God that was in their testimony. They conquered the devil with words. Now, most of the sick that Jesus healed during his ministry were healed with words. Most of them were. There was a few created miracles that he done, but most of the miracles he just spoke words. Now, God created the universe with words, faith-filled words. Jesus says to the woman, Thy faith has made thee whole. He said to dead Lazarus, Come forth. His words raise the dead. Satan is overcome by words. He is whipped by words. Our lips become the means of transportation of God's deliverance from heaven to man's needs here on this earth. We get it done by words. By speaking the word of God, we become more than conquerors in Christ. When we use God's word, we whisper, In Jesus' name, demon, come out of him. And Jesus said, In my name you shall cast out demons. In my name you shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. All this with words. I might tell you that I have done that many times. Many people read those mighty promises in the word of God and never act on them. Sickness and disease begins to overcome them, and never do they realize it's a demon of hell that's making them sick and afflicting them. And God has given them in the word the power to cast out that demon and to lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. But when the word of God becomes a living reality to you, and you speak his words in your mouth, Demons will flee and fall and go back to the pit of hell and stay there. And you will be able to lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And you'll do it all with words. I question whether the hands do more than register to the senses. It is the word that heals. Jesus said, whatsoever you demand in my name, that will I do. In the Greek, the word ask in John fourteen thirteen means demand. We are demanding just as Peter did at the beautiful gate when he said over there in the book of Acts, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. 
Words heal that man. Now we make our confession of words. We hold fast to our confession. We refuse to be defeated in our confession. John 8.32 says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Or John 8.36, he said, If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Now we know that the Son has set us free, and we confess it. Now Jesus is the high priest of our confession. Christ conquered the enemies of humanity, which are Satan, sin, sickness, fear, death, and want. He made them captive, and he set man free. Hebrews 4.14 tells us to hold fast to the confession of our faith. You know, I think right here as I'm talking about these things, I think about when Abraham Lincoln came to set the slaves free, when he signed the Emancipation Proclamation years and years and years ago, immediately every slave was free. But for many, many years, the black people still rode in the back of the bus. They couldn't go to certain bathrooms. They couldn't eat in certain restaurants. They still remained a slave. But finally one day, back in the 60s, I believe it was somewhere along there, when Martin Luther King came on the scene, and he said, it's written in the laws of the land. We have the right to be citizens. We have the right for our kids to go to school where we want them to go. We have the right to ride in public transportation. We have the right to eat in restaurants and to use the same bathrooms that everybody else does. Now, we want what is rightfully ours. And he took the laws of this land, and with words, they came against the enemy, and they defeated the foe. And now then, the black man is finally free. He can do everything he wants to do, just like anybody else, whether he's red, yellow, black, or white. It doesn't make any difference now in America. But this is the way Christians are. Jesus freed us from all these things. He freed us from sin, from sickness, disease, from death, from fear, from all, from Satan. All, he set us free. But we just don't realize it. And most Christians have never realized that Jesus signed our Emancipation Proclamation and went back to heaven and gave us all this power and authority and became our high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession in him. That confession is faith speaking. It is our victory over the enemy. It is our confidence in the Word of God and in our Savior. Now, Colossians 2 says, in verse 5, it says, For although, as you say, I am absent from you in body, yet in spirit am I present with you, am in delighted to witness your good discipline and the solid front presented by your faith in Christ. Now, that solid front he's talking about there means continual confession of victory. 
we should never confess anything but victory as born-again Christians. Because in Romans 8:37, I have heard many people quote this verse. People that are sick and afflicted will say this, not having a clue what it means. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Oh, if we could just get a hold of what that really means. In Colossians 2.15, Jesus clearly said that he disarmed the principalities and powers which fought against him and put them to an open shame. Now, if Jesus disarms Satan, all of the principalities and powers, which is Satan and his hosts, if he disarmed them and put them to an open shame, then why, why are we letting Satan run over us as Christians? Because we're we should stop making the wrong kind of confession. And we should begin at once to learn how to confess and what to confess. We should begin to confess that we are what he says we are and hold fast to that confession in the face of every contrary evidence. We should refuse to be weak or to acknowledge weakness. We refuse to have anything to do with a wrong confession. We are what he says we are. We hold fast to that confession with a fearless consciousness that God's word can never fail. We are what he says we are. We can do what he says we can do. And as long as we've got that locked in our heart, and we realize we're sons of God, and that Satan has been disarmed by the powers of God, we're the winners.